0: alright we are in Acts 19 let's go ahead and pray to God the Holy Spirit that he'll illuminate the word for us and to us that we might learn the Bible definitely father thank you for sending the son we thank you Jesus God the son that you have taken our sin debt and paid it in our place for us that it is finished and then no matter what unrighteousness we engage in Uh, Though we hate that unrighteousness, it does not separate us from you, it does not cast us away, it does not send us to hell, but rather it is forgiven, it is under the blood, and we are cleansed through that blood. Thank you, Jesus, that through that cleansing, you can send us the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, thank you for making your home inside of us. Thank you for making much of God the Son, Jesus, and thank you for making much of his word. And now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the Word to us, that you would teach us the Bible, that you have inspired. It is infallible, inerrant, perfection. And I do pray that you would bring us comfort and conviction, encouragement and rebuke, understanding and insight into your Word. We pray that we might learn the Bible today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, when I was in high school i took a test it's a career test i think i was about 16 and when you take one of these career tests it's not long or anything you'd about half an hour filling out those little dots you guys remember it number two pencil filling out the dots teacher walking around making sure you don't cheat which is kind of funny because the career test is really You know, it's about you. It's about what you want to do, what you don't want to do, what subjects you like, what subjects you don't like. It's about your personality, the things you find interesting or not interesting. And at the end of this test, you fill in all these blanks and all these dots. It uh, is processed somewhere, I don't know, uh, the government, I don't know, the Illuminati takes it, or whatever, and they send it back to you in an envelope and they tell you a few jobs that you should go for, and they also tell you a few jobs you should avoid like the plague. It's called a career test. Uh, At least I took it up in Indiana when I was in high school. And I remember getting the results back in that envelope and I opened it up because I'm really curious, see what job they think I should go for. You know, I'm 16, headed towards 18. You know, gonna need a job. I figured that out so far in my life. You know, and uh, I get the thing back, and it said the number one career that I should pursue was being an artist. And I was like, I'll take rock star. That's kind of an art. Yeah, that's that's about right. I should at the time when I'm 16, I'm thinking, yeah, I should be an artist. I should be world famous. I should be on every magazine. This is correct, okay? And the. Career, it said I should avoid at all costs, was military, okay? Uh, it did. It said, do not pursue the military. It said, uh it gave a few reasons why, but the basic gist was it'd be bad for me, it'd be bad for the country, and so they said, do not, your personality, your style, you do not want to go towards the military, and I thought, this is also correct, right? This is, uh, this seems like it'd be bad for everybody uncle sam and everybody under him so the pentagon wouldn't even know what to do they'd just be like just send them back i don't know give them money send them back i don't know what they do and so i never went that route i never went towards uh that military route had some family members who did uh friends who did but it was never really for me but then when i was 17 i met jesus and i started following jesus walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, trying to live for Jesus. I've been doing this for 14 years now. And though I haven't always lived like Jesus, I have been living with Jesus. And what I have found out is that I joined a military. In fact, it's a severe, high-level military operation in that I started to engage in spiritual warfare right when I started walking with Jesus, Today we're looking at Paul as he goes into a place called Ephesus. Well, technically he got there last week, but here's where his ministry really starts. On his third missionary journey, he's in a place called Ephesus, and this place is known for spiritual warfare. This is a place that is is obviously facing darkness and high places. They had a temple to a god called Artemis. A goddess, rather, called Artemis. It was a large temple. When I say it was a large temple, I mean it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This, was a, this is a central location for all worshipers of a goddess named Artemis. The average citizen would have been into magic and spellcasting, incantations, dark arts, demonic uh, influence, possession, or oppression. It was a place known for being engaged in supernatural activity... And demonic activity. In fact, you see this really clearly when you see the letter Paul later wrote to the Christians at Ephesus. It's called Ephesians, it's in the New Testament of your Bible. A couple of the verses you've probably seen as you've read Ephesians or heard as you've uh, heard Ephesians preached, uh, they might kind of just seem like generalities, but actually they're really specific for the people of Ephesus. I'll give you a couple examples that these verses in Ephesians that kind of show us the spiritual battle they were in. Ephesians two, 2. Ephesians 2.2 2 says, wherein in times past, right before you were saved, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Right, so he's not speaking in general, though it's generally true. If you're not with Jesus, you are against Jesus. He's speaking very specifically, like you used to be engaged with the spirit that works in children of disobedience. You used to have, uh, used to have close contact with the spiritual realm on the dark side. Right? That's, that's the idea. Ephesians 6.12, additionally, says this, "...for we wrestle not against flesh and blood." "...but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." And right, so he's specifically talking to the Ephesians saying, yeah, man, you were when you started following Jesus, the temptations that you faced, the trials that you faced, you were duking it out. You were wrestling against the demons who used to count you as their property." And now they've lost you and they're bothering you. And he's speaking very specifically to the obvious, the overt spiritual warfare that they faced in Ephesus. Now, we're all in this battle just the same. It just happened to be more forefront, more obvious, more manifest in Ephesus. But that doesn't mean that 2019 in the West were off the hook, Right, the Bible was written to Ephesus, but uh, this book of the Bible was written to Ephesus, but for all believers who would come after, and that means us. To this day, Satan and his demons hate God, and thus they hate you if you're with him. They have a plan to destroy or at least oppress us until we go to be with him forever. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober be vigilant your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour now jesus is fighting this war as our captain as our general he is fighting this war for us he has won this war he is winning this war and he will win this war that is true all three of those in fact are true and so sometimes we ignore this war because we feel safe in this war because we've read the end of the book We've read Revelation, and here's what we know from Revelation. Jesus ultimately wins the war. In fact, uh, whenever, I like this phrase, I've seen it on, I don't know, bumper sticker or something. Whenever the devil reminds you of your past to remind him of his future. If you look in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says that eventually Jesus, literally the word is fastballs Satan into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are there to be tormented day and night forever and ever so in english it says he casts him into the lake of fire the literal the way you would say it in 2019 like literally from the greek is he 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 fastballs him in there and he wins and we know that jesus wins we've seen the empty tomb we know one day our tomb will also be empty jesus said i'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many rooms if it weren't so i wouldn't have told you we know there's a place prepared for us So we feel safe. But here's one interesting thing to note is that you can get hurt in this battle along the way. You will win in the end, but that doesn't mean you stop fighting now. Jesus won this battle on the cross. He'll win this battle in the end, and he is still fighting even now. And so here's a question we want to ask, and a question I believe is answered in Acts 19. How does Jesus help us fight in spiritual warfare, right now like on a daily basis what are some of the things that jesus does as our captain and general for us and through us to win the spiritual warfare we're engaged in today we'll see several things from acts 19 we'll start here the first thing i think he does is he validates he validates his truth look at acts 19:11. We'll just read a couple verses to start off with, Acts 19, 11 and 12. It says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits, remember, spiritual warfare in Ephesus, went out of them. So let me tell you this this is the story of spiritual warfare from the beginning of the book to the end of the book God speaks right we have a communicator God he talks to us it's awesome okay Satan comes in and twists God's word doubts God's word or adds or takes away to God's word and then God comes back in and validates what he originally said he validates his truth that's the story from the beginning. As you know, Genesis 3, the serpent's first words were, did God really say, you can't eat from this tree in the garden? Right From the beginning to the end, Satan demeans God's word. He, he twists God's word, but God, to help us in the spiritual warfare we're engaged in, validates his word, and that's actually what's going on in Acts 19, 11, and 12 big idea is that a new message has come into Ephesus. Whereas they're used to messages of darkness, magic, spell casting, and witchcraft, a message of light, of salvation, of grace, and of connection with the Holy Spirit has come in. He, Paul, begins speaking in the synagogue in verses 8 through 10, and it does go well for a while from what we understand, but eventually, shocker, the people of the synagogue boot him out. So, Paul, in verses 8 through 10 of Acts 19, takes up a job as a tent maker. That was his trade. He would do this in the mornings. And then we see that he rents a school. It's called the Hall of Tyrannus, right there. In verses 8 through 10, you can see it. He rents a school in the afternoons, and he lectures every day for a couple of years to whoever would come take his Bible class. I would love to go to this Bible class, personally, right? I mean, that'd be awesome. Paul just rents this school, probably pays for it with his tent making money, and just all afternoon, he's going to lecture on the Old Testament Scriptures, on the Messiah, on the Christian life, on the church, for anyone who will come. And people come from all over the place, and then they go back to all over the place so that the word spreads throughout all of Asia Minor. Pretty incredible. And at some point, here's what's happening, okay? Okay is that these folks, hearing this message, they're used to supernatural activity, and they're wondering if there will be any supernatural activity to follow Paul's teaching. Right? Most of their teachers can manipulate the demonic realm and do some sort of magic or miracle. What about Paul? That's the big need in Ephesus, is a validation. Now, it's interesting. Paul doesn't seek to show off and do miracles. That's not how Christians use miracles. Bible-believing Christians don't use miracles to wow people or amaze people. In fact, Bible-believing Christians don't attempt to do miracles. They attempt to be a part of a miracle perhaps God wants to do. And so so they're wondering, you know, will there be a miracle? He's not, I don't think, really seeking to perform one like some sort of magician. But God does want this to be validated, and he wants to do it through the miraculous for the people he loves in Ephesus. So verse 11, it says, the first three words we read, God wrought, right? God wrought special miracles. So God decides he wants to do a miracle, and whenever he wants to do one, he does one. And they, very interestingly here, are special miracles. It means they're unique. They're not like the miracles they're seeing from the... Spiritual darkness they've been living in. It's a totally different kind of miracle. The miracles they were used to had to do with sacrifices, charms, spell casting, incantations. This is totally different. I mean, this is different. Okay, here's what's happening in verses 11 and 12. Paul's making tents all morning. He's getting super gross and sweaty, right? Something you know, you never have to worry about that with me, right? I'm never getting sweaty. I made a vow, right, like, hey, I will not exert myself. But anyway, so he's exerting himself, making tents, cutting leather, getting sweaty, and he's got an apron on that a leathersmith would wear. He's got a headband on because he's probably got longer hair. He's probably trying to keep it out of his eyes. So he's got a headband, a sweatband on, and he comes into the hall of Tyrannus just to teach, and he takes off his gear. And some of the followers of Paul come and they take his nasty, like, gym clothes, if you will. They take these dirty, these work clothes, they take them and they run out to people that they know are in the ER, that they know have demonic possession and oppression, and they, they, they simply apply those sweatbands onto these people, and a miraculous healing takes place. Praise God. I mean, God does what He wants, when He wants, and He does it how He wants, and it's always unique, It's always special and different, and it never looks like the world, the flesh, or the devil. This can't be attributed to Paul, right? What are they going to be like? Man, your sweat is awesome, right? There's no way. This is God, right? And it's it's amazing. And we love God, and we appreciate God, because here's what he's doing. He's validating Paul's message, and it's a beautiful thing. He validates his truth, and he helps us in spiritual warfare. See, they're in spiritual warfare. Who are we going to believe? Light or darkness? Well, the darkness is doing tricks. We're we're inclined to believe the darkness. But God loves people who are in darkness. And so he validates the light so that they'll know. Oh, that's the way. Does he still do this today? Absolutely. He does this today. Once in a while, he does do miracles today if he wants. Right? Don't get so cessationist you don't think there's a miracle that can happen at some point. I mean, God can do whatever he wants. If God is in a place doing work and wants to validate His truth through a miracle, He can do it. If it's of Him and for His glory and people are getting saved, it is possible. But let me tell you one thing for us right now, one thing we sometimes miss out on in the West, 2019, right here where we're living, is that we got a great validation of God's Word, and it's the Scriptures. Right? I would say the miracle of our age is our access to the New Testament, That, I mean, nothing validates God's message like the Bible validates God's message. Sixty-six books, 40 authors, 1,400 years of time, they all tell one story about the God-man who redeems sinful people, comes back to rescue them and give them eternal life in the end. I mean, that's an amazing, amazing thing. I mean, imagine trying to get 40 people to tell one story. I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the hardest times of the week is right after this service when me and my friends go, where do you want to eat? It doesn't matter. If there's two people, there's two opinions. If there's three people, there's three opinions. If there's ten people, there's ten opinions. we got 40 authors who are like, we're sinners, God loves us, he sends a Messiah, his name's Jesus, he rises from death, frees us from captivity, comes back, takes over, king of kings. Hallelujah? This is validation the canon right this this is look look, look this is what Paul said you need it in fact when he talks about spiritual warfare to the Ephesians he doesn't say to go for signs he says to go for the sword he says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood you need to put on the whole armor of God and then he says reach for the sword which is the word of God And at this point, this would have been scrolls in the synagogue of Old Testament prophets. So now that we have the New Testament letters, the four gospels, we have the epistles, we have all these things, I mean, much more so, we reach for the sword. If you're in spiritual warfare, you're going to be tempted to look for the sign. Once in a while, God sends a sign. That's his business. But he's already given us a sign in the sword. We reach for the sword. When the devil throws those fiery darts at you, right? Like you're, you're unloved. You're, you're, you're worthless. When he starts, this is one of the the lies the devil tells uh, the most, right? God loves everybody, but he tolerates you. You ever been there? God, he's not gonna send me to hell, but he's not really thrilled with me. Yeah, that's not true, man. God loves you, God likes you, God for you, God is for you, and if He is for you, who can be against you? God is for you. He likes you more than you like you, and you like you a lot. Right? I don't. I've never died on the cross for myself. My mom loves me, but she's not on a Roman cross somewhere. The only person who ever took the Roman cross was my Savior, and that forever stamps this into stone. I am fully known and i am fully loved say where do you get that a miracle no it's the sword of the spirit it's the word of god genesis 2 he made us in his image you look like your father talk like your father walk and act like your father just your existence you are special noted loved cared for you rebel against your father who is a king who makes a law you break his law and so he runs not from you but after you while we were yet sinners christ died for us he comes to earth us on his mind takes the cross with us on his mind it was all for you he do it all again for you he knows your name in his lamb's book of life and it's in there because he loves you So you fight with the sword of the Spirit, and if on occasion God wants to do something supernatural, praise Him. Either way, here's how He helps us in spiritual warfare. He validates His truth. He validates His truth. Additionally, He exposes counterfeits. He exposes counterfeits. Look at uh, verse 13. Verse 13, we'll read through verse 17. This is a pretty hilarious story, to be honest with you. You think the Bible's boring? You probably haven't read this one. Check this out. Verse 13, it says this. Certain of the vagabond Jews, right, exorcists, these guys casting out demons, going place to place, took upon them to call over... Them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. Right? So come on out of that guy. We're using the name of Jesus like Paul does. Verse 14, it says, And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, the chief priest, which did this. Verse 15, And the evil spirit, this is hysterical, Evil spirit goes, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Like I'm comfortable in here. I don't have to listen to you. I'm staying in this guy. Verse 16, it says, And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Verse 17, and this was known to everyone. Everybody saw this one. This was, this was headline news. Jews and the Greeks, also dwelling at Ephesus, saw this, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So we got these seven guys Brothers, it seems, traveling place to place doing exorcisms. They're trying to cast out demons. Now, we know that they probably were not successfully actually casting out demons. Say, so how do you know? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look when Jesus, he starts casting out demons. And the Jewish people are like, whoa, whoa. Like that that actually worked. You got authority over these things. That's amazing. In other words, they weren't used to that. So whatever their version of this was, it was likely somewhat of like a fortune teller type experience where they just you know the fortune teller will tell you a general idea of a general future and you're gonna be like that's me that's amazing right those horoscopes something good will happen to you in the next 20 years oh man that's amazing right and so you know the idea is it was something like that right so it's like hey i can manipulate spiritual darkness to make you feel better for a time but it wasn't an exorcism and so these guys are going around they're trying to do these exorcisms that's how they make their living and they've heard of paul having success in the supernatural realm so they go we'll just do that we'll just do that and so they say hey right like a magic word abracadabra come out of that guy jesus says and the demon i mean it's almost i mean i think it's comical the demon's like who are you you're not with jesus that's very interesting Like, i know the name of jesus you know the demons aren't atheists Not even Satan is an atheist, agnostic, right? He's totally on board with, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, one Holy Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Satan knows all that. He goes, Jesus, I know that guy, yeah. Paul, I know Paul. They know our names. Very likely, they might know your name. Just make sure they know your name because you're a problem for them and not a property of them. Paul, I know, but who are you? Like you're a fake, you're a counterfeit. Now, if a demon calls you a fake, that's pretty fake, right? Right? Like when you get called out by the demonic, right? You really need to question your life choices because you're 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 a counterfeit. Get out of you! You're telling me to get out of here. No, you get out of here. He overwhelms the man in whom he dwells, and this 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 dude. Gives them a whooping of a lifetime. It's unbelievable. And here's something kind of interesting, is that technically, in one sense, the demon and the exorcist in this case are on the same team. (laughs) They're both somehow defeated by one another. God is simply, in his sovereignty, using the demonic to cast out the demonic in this case. In fact, this is something God actually, we see loves to do in the scriptures to show off his power and his glory you can see this through the old testament even many times israel will be facing a battle and there'll be an enemy army trying to take the covenant take the promised land take whatever and and they'll get into battle and god will be like don't send very many people like gideon right send like 300 dudes and they'll be like, well, we're going to die. And they get there, and what God does is he sends the enemy army into, like, this confusion, and they fold in on themselves, like in Gideon, right? He, like, you know, get up to the hill, blast the trumpet. Uh, I think he, like, makes them, like, crash the pitchers and, you know, scream or something or hold up a torch, and they think, man, there's this massive army of, like, 300,000, not 300. And they all get in this freakout in their own camp, and they die by their own swords. Throughout the scriptures, we see this is one of the ways God enjoys showing his power, his sovereignty. And so in this case, it's no different. He's casting out the sons of Sceva by the demon that's on their own team to show everybody who's really in charge. It's neither of them, it's him. It's him. It shows how weak these the, the the spiritual darkness they're engaged in is. Yeah, it's supernatural, but it's supernatural weakness. Compared to God's purpose, this is counterfeit. So Satan is strong compared to us, but he's incredibly, infinitely weak compared to God. I mean, he can't even keep his own team together. God throws him into a frenzy, into shame. In fact, I... Reminded of Colossians 2.15, when he's talking about Jesus and his cross and how it affected the demonic realm, it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So God the Father puts the demonic realm to open shame through what he did on the cross with his son, Jesus. And we see that at play in the physical realm here because these seven sons of Sceva leave the house they enter into in open shame right like there's some fights okay where you don't know really who won this is not that case if you come into the fight with pants on and you leave with pants off you lost the fight you're in open shame like it is clear that you are not able to use Jesus' name like a spell or like magic or like the dark arts like you want to. This is a name above all names. This is a name at which every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is a different ball game than what you're used to. When it comes to the seven sons of Sceva, it's easy to see right? they're a counterfeit. All the people of Ephesus know, hey, these guys were counterfeit. Jesus exposes counterfeits so that we know and remember who's our captain, where is he leading us soldiers, and we rejoice in his victory. I want you to understand, as you follow Jesus, there will be counterfeits. Lots of them. Just like the sons of Sceva attached Jesus' name to their nonsense... There will be many counterfeits that come at you attaching Jesus' name to their nonsense. Right? This might be counterfeit teachers. There will be teachers who teach worldly philosophy and tack on Jesus' name. There will be counterfeit doctrines. Counterfeit doctrines. Like, I heard of, I've been actually really researching one recently, is just literally a false doctrine that just puts Jesus' name at the front. It's called Christian Universalism, which is. Kind of hilarious. I mean, it's like an oxymoron, right? It's like, it's like two totally opposite things. It's this idea, universalism, universalism, rather, is everybody ends up in heaven no matter who they worship, what God they follow, what, what, you know, at all. And Christian universalism is the same thing with Jesus' name attached to it. It's going around. It's very popular amongst people my age and younger. And it's this idea that if you get saved, you come to Christ in life. Praise God, you go straight to heaven. If you reject Jesus in life, You go to a judgment where you see Jesus and you're given this second chance to repent after death and because you see how glorious and good he is, you will repent so everybody will end up in heaven. And I'm like, well, he wasted a lot of time dying on a cross then and he wasted a lot of time warning us, right? Do not fear him who can kill the body but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's not like I'm like, pumped that there's a hell but i like jesus and jesus told me he who believes will be saved he who believes not will be damned mark 16 john 3 16 for god loves us so much he sent his son and whoever believes in him will not perish that's one option or they'll have everlasting life that's another option i am the way the truth the life no one comes to the father but by me say how do we know well he's the one guy who rose again from death That's how we know. If you get another guy who rises again from death, that's going to make this curious. But there's one guy who rose again from death. There's one guy, we cannot find his body. He was the most famous, by far, most popular person to ever exist, guarded by the greatest government at that time period, under lock and key, with professional security, and he gets out and ascends to heaven in front of over 500 people. So I'm going to believe what he says about the afterlife. He seems to know about it. And you will see counterfeit doctrines that say he doesn't know about it. But Jesus will expose the counterfeit. There will be counterfeit thoughts. Think, you know, some thought that pops in your head. It's not truth, but it attaches Jesus' name. Like, I'm not going to serve at church because I'm not good enough for Jesus' church. Incorrect. You are plenty. So some people are like, hey, I'm too bad to go to church. And I'm like, nope, you're just bad enough. Come on. Welcome. Welcome. This is a place for wounded people, sinful people, bad people who want good news. That's the church. And and that's where we're at today. And so there might be a thought, I'm not good enough. Incorrect. There might be a counterfeit feeling. I don't feel good enough. And it might attach Jesus' name to it. Because I sin, I don't feel good enough. Well, Jesus forgives your sin. He loves to forgive your sin. He's able and quick to forgive your sin. He's glad to forgive your sin. And to be honest with you, if you understand the idea of righteousness, once you accept Christ, He chooses to remember your sin no more, but rather see you through His own list of good deeds. So He sees you not only as if you never sinned, He sees you as if you did everything He did, like feed the poor. Heal the sick, and teach the Bible. You might have counterfeit community, and Jesus will expose the counterfeit. Sometimes friends come into your life, and they attach Jesus' name to the friendship, but they're really not Christian friends. It just happens once in a while. It's not every day. It's not every you know, every experience you're ever going to have in church. But once in a while, this happens, right? I've had this happen. Someone come in, you know, hey, pray for me. Let's go to Bible study. Let's talk about Jesus. Oh, by the way, I need a big loan. Well, I I need a big loan. (laughs) I can't help you with your big loan. I thought you loved Jesus. I thought you—I thought you were all about Christian charity. I thought you were going to help me. I didn't. Well, I help you. I help you get to the bank to get a big loan, but I'm not a bank, right? And then all of a sudden, they want to turn Jesus around on you and guilt you into something you can't even do. And they're Christian. They're—they're they're, they're counterfeit Christian community. But here's the thing: as you study the Word and you're filled with the Spirit and you follow Jesus, He has a way of exposing counterfeits. And when he does expose counterfeits, it's not to hurt people, it's to help people. See, the seven sons of Sceva are in a better place, believe it or not, walking out of that house pantless as they were coming in with pants on. Because now they know that name, Jesus, is not to be used, flippantly or in vain, but to be magnified. And I don't think it says this here, but I would not be surprised if they came to Christ. I would have, after that he does it for them too he loves us all he wants us all to come in and to have his eternal joy eternal peace eternal life and so he exposes counterfeits so that we'll come to him and we'll win spiritual warfare last but not least he leads us to confession and repentance we'll we'll look at verses 18 through 20 this one last story it's it's pretty epic Verses 18, uh, this is Acts 19, 18 through 20. It says this. And many that believed, lots of people believing in Jesus, after watching the seven sons of Sceva lose that fight, many who believed came, and this is interesting. They confessed and showed their deeds, and many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together, and they burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. See, God's winning. Mightily grows the word of God and prevails. That sword of the spirit we swing always cuts. It always works. It never fails. Jesus is winning I want you to understand that. We are, we, we got to be careful with this, right? You see, oh, the world's getting worse and worse, culture's going further and further. Okay, so that's, there's not, it's not that that's totally false, but it's one side of the story, right? Because I do think that we, we got to admit, Jesus is also. Right, doing his plan, his sovereign work, saving and redeeming people. There's a lot of churches fighting the good fight, a lot of churches being planted, a lot of good. There is a lot of hope. There is a lot of spiritual activity from the Holy Spirit, redeeming people all over the world. Right, Jesus wins. He's the winner in this fight. His word grows and prevails. There will come a time where the, First Timothy says that, that the world will get just about as bad as it can get before it folds in on himself, but then he just comes back. So he never really, he never loses. He only wins. He is victorious. Here it says that his word is growing and prevailing. Say, how is it growing and prevailing? What's part of this? Well, confession and repentance. It's like a sword. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, and we swing it sometimes by confession and repentance. Jesus helps us by leading us to confession and repentance. Look at verse 18, right? In verse 18, it says, they confessed and showed their deeds. Now, this is like the town square, hundreds, maybe thousands of people coming together, almost like an open mic, one by one, they're saying what they've done out loud, okay? Now, let me give you a little bit of the background of why they're doing this. True story, in this day and time of Ephesus... If you said a spell, a charm, an incantation, witchcraft, if you said it out loud in public, it was considered useless right after that. It lost its power. Okay. That, that's what they believed. I don't know if that's true or false, but that's what they thought, so that's why they're doing this. They're confessing this. They're, they're, they're stating their spell casting, their incantations out loud so that they can't go back to them. See, this is why we get into Griggs groups, and once in a while, when you feel led, you don't have to do this every 30 seconds, I'm not trying to put pressure on you, but once in a while, you want to just say, here's what I'm struggling with. Part of what goes on when we do that is it's harder to go back to that struggle now that people are going to help you with it, and that is called victory over sin. That's what that's called. Can't go back to my spell. Now, it's divulged, it's useless, but for them, it's not enough. This is unbelievable. They go and they take the books that these spells are bound up in, and they throw them in the fire. And it's a costly bonfire. It says it costs 50,000 pieces of silver. If you add up all the worth of all these books, that, in Ephesus and their economy, a piece of silver was a day's wage. This is 136 years worth of work. They throw into the fire so that they for sure can't go back to it. That's repentance. And that is called victory in spiritual warfare. They're giving up something that they thought they couldn't live without. This would be like you giving up your cell phone, your smartphone, to keep away from the difficult temptations that come with the internet this would be like giving up a lucrative job to give up the temptations that perhaps come with it in the area of fraud this would be like giving up a childhood best friend who wants you to get back into drinking this is like giving up your cutting up your credit cards so you don't go back into materialism and frivolous versions of debt. This would be like giving your spouse your whereabouts at all times so you don't have an affair. This is like giving up your normal day-to-day for rehab so that you can get sober. It's like this extreme turning away so that you cannot go back to the darkness that almost destroyed you. This is called victory. Confession and repentance is victory over sin. You win when you confess. You win when you repent. Confession and repentance is something that hurts a little bit on the front end, but on the back end, you realize it is a gift of God's great grace. It's grace. It's grace. And you know it's grace when you see it spread. You see, confession and repentance, God does this, in us, and then he comes out through us. It's unbelievable. I think one of the things that the writer, Dr. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, I think one of the things he's doing as he explains these stories in Acts 19 and what happened in Ephesus is he's showing us basically the timeline of events on earth and how they take place first in the spiritual realm. For those of you who are newer to the Bible or newer to faith, this is going to sound a little weird to you, crazy to you. Welcome. Uh, some of the stuff we talk about does get a little weird, okay? But here's the idea, that what happens on earth doesn't start necessarily on earth. Now, some stuff starts and stops here, right? Like today, right, I picked the cinnamon donut instead of the chocolate donut. I don't think that started in the supernatural realm, okay? I'm not saying that. Some stuff starts and stops here. But there are many things when it comes to righteousness and unrighteousness that start above us in a realm we cannot see and end in the realm we can see. Okay, so here's the idea on this timeline. God loves Ephesus, even though they're far, far from him. God loves Ephesus, just like he loves Greenville and America and you. And so God moves in the realm we don't see towards Ephesus, right? It is not that Paul is some superhuman that can figure out, I'm going to go here next and there next. I'm going to survive this attack and this stoning and this beating. No, God gets him through all of that to send his word, which at this time comes through the apostle, to Ephesus. Paul preaches, and as he preaches in the hall of Tyrannus every afternoon after his tent making, the Spirit works. People are coming to Christ. Events and miracles take place that the Spirit puts on so that people will accept their Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And then those people act in the physical realm. It starts here, ends here. God has grace here. We confess and repent here. It's the same with darkness, Temptation comes from something we cannot see into the heart and we end up doing something we can see. And likely, and many times, it is in retaliation to what God does. God creates, Satan counterfeits. God speaks, Satan doubts it. God does, Satan tries to convince you. It's a coincidence, it's not a miracle. So here's what happens in the book of Acts, chapter 19. This is unbelievable. You could read this in verse 21 through 41. After this giant confession service, where they burn their witchcraft, their books, their magic spells, and their dark arts, the city is fundamentally changed in the physical. In fact, the economy changes. And what you'll see in verse 21 through 41 of Acts 19 is that the silversmith community goes broke. Because they made for a living little silver goddesses of Artemis, and now so many people are repenting of goddess worship and coming to Jesus, they're not seeing little silver Artemises. Right, you're supposed to buy one for the. And for the chariot and for the house and whatever, for grandma, whatever. You know, you're supposed to buy all these. Now we don't worship Artemis. We don't buy him. The silversmith community is on the verge of growing broke. There's a guy named Demetrius, you'll meet in Acts 19, who comes, gets the silversmith community together, says, We got to get everybody back into this religion because it's costing us cash. We got to make some money. And we need to get this guy Paul out of town. We need to get everybody excited about Artemis again so we can get our you know, bank accounts back up. And so they do, they start a counter-riot. There's the holy riot of confessing and repenting. Then there comes this counterfeit riot, starts here, ends here. They go through the streets into a theater, crying out, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. They get a number of people to join them. Of course, Paul wants to get on stage and talk to him, but the officials of the city actually stop Paul, probably saving his life, like this is not the time. Nobody really gets on stage. One other guy gets on stage. There's a Jewish guy who tried to differentiate himself from Paul, but they just took him off stage right away. They didn't want to hear from him. And so there's this riot going on, and finally the town clerk gets on stage and says, you guys just have to deal with it. Right? He says, stop this. You're going to be all charged with rioting you really have a problem, like you think Paul has robbed you, which he hasn't, he's just taught his faith, which is allowed here in Ephesus, right? You can take him to court. If he's really committed a crime, the courts are open. But he hadn't committed a crime, had he? No, he preached the truth, and their lie went out of business. What started in the spiritual realm ends in the physical realm. What good comes from God, we see in the physical And when we see it, we go, oh, that is grace. When I was trying to get sober, that hurt. But now that I see that guy getting sober because I was able to help him or minister to him or encourage him, I could see that's grace. When I was trying to fight my sin of lust or whatever, I thought, man, this is hard. This is difficult. This is painful. But I see that guy walk in purity. I could see that's Grace and you rejoice because not only do you have victory but the people you love have victory the community has victory it comes in you and then through you and here's what i'm getting to for application for us i want us in our church to hate sin love jesus love our neighbor i want us to confess and repent of sin in us and then i want it to come through us to the neighborhood that is our mission field i want to see drug dealers out of business because of what God is doing here amen I want to see human traffickers out of business because of what God is doing here amen I want to see child protective services out of business because of what God is doing here and he does these things he will do these things he can do these things we just got to pick up our swords Engage the battle and fight on the right side. In fact, that's where we'll close today. Here's the idea. We need to repent. Repentance starts with us, bleeds into the neighborhood. What do you need to repent of? You can do it as we sing in your heart and prayer to God. If you're a Christian, perhaps you need to repent of ignoring the battle that you are actually in. Perhaps you need to repent of blaming God for the battle and how bad it hurts. Perhaps you need to repent of believing that God is not down to help you in this battle when really he's carrying all the weight. You need to ask Jesus to help you see what you cannot see. The good that he is already doing for you in an unseen realm. The the way he's already helping you in a spiritual battle that you're engaged in. Help him to give you eyes To see what you cannot see this is christianity we walk by faith not by sight whereas everyone else lives in one realm we live in two if you're a non-christian you need to repent of being on the wrong side you're on a side that does not care for you does not love you and wishes to destroy you and you're fighting for them Because you're either with Jesus or against Jesus. If you're a non-Christian, come to the safe side, the winning side, the side who'd do anything for you, the side whose captain dies for you, the side whose captain doesn't send demons to do all his work, but is actually on the front lines, the side who's going for eternal life, the side who is good, for God is good. If you're a non-Christian, come to Jesus. If you're a Christian, repent and confess to Jesus, and let's all get back in the battle. I'll pray, and we'll fight our battle next through singing to Jesus, our King. Jesus, we love you so much, and thank you for all the good you do for us before we ever see it here in the physical realm. Thank you for all the th- times you've thought of us and protected us here on earth, all the times you reached out to us, and for many of us, actually got to us and saved us and began a relationship with us here on earth. Thank you. Thank you that you validate your message. Thank you that you expose our counterfeits. Thank you that you lead us to confession and repentance, which really is just victory. I pray that we'd have some victory over sin, that you would lead us and guide us to do what is right and good and to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.